This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Siebrecht, CEO and co-founder of Flex, an omni-channel logistics solution that's raised $263 million in funding. Carl, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Super excited. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Of course. Yeah. So grew up in Houston, Texas, became a Duke Blue Devil, go Blue Devils. The way I made that happen was through a Navy scholarship. I was in Navy ROTC, which ended up being an amazing experience. It started out being basically a funding opportunity uh, (laughs) to be able to go to go to school where I wanted to go to school. But what that comes with is an obligation to be in the Navy after graduating. So I was a Navy diver for four years, then business school, consulting, which was like an MBA on steroids at Bain & Company in a private equity practice, and then got pulled out to Seattle to work for my very first startup, tech startup experience. That was 1999. And since then, I have worked in three different companies all during the build stage. And uh, we started Flex in 2013. So it's been actually a super fantastic ride. And a lot of the experiences definitely have built on each other. Whenever we have guests who've been in the military, we always like to ask, you know, what did you take away from that experience? So for you, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot that you took away from that experience, but what would be like kind of the biggest thing that comes to mind? It's probably a little bit cliche, but leadership, you know, just at this very fundamental level of, you know, In the military, the population of people there is very large, incredibly diverse. The skills and range of different skills people have is very, very broad. And, you know, to get stuff done, you really have to rally a lot of different types of people together around a thing, like a mission, right? A reason why, why are we all here? And what's particularly interesting, and I would also say challenging, you know, sometimes If there's a conflict or a war, the mission can be relatively pretty clear, but lots of times, thankfully, there's not a war or a conflict. And so the mission is more nebulous. You're really training in case something were to happen. And that's a harder, less clear mission to rally around. So, you know, starting there as a, as a junior officer, not really knowing anything about anything, you know, hopefully, and I certainly was lucky enough to have a couple of mentors who can kind of show you the ropes and you start to develop this leadership muscle, which is really just about rallying people, building teams. And, you know, I won't spend tons of time on it, although I probably could talk the whole hour on this, but it's just about, it's about people and engaging with people of all different types. So again, broadly defined leadership was definitely the main thing I learned over those four years in the Navy. And I see it was 99, it looks like, that you joined that first tech company. What was working in tech like back in 1999? Yeah, it was pretty awesome. So as I said, I was working at Bain & Company in this consulting job, learning a ton. It was very intense and super fun. I wasn't looking to leave, but actually a close friend of mine was one of the founders of one of the very first ad tech companies that was ever created. They founded their company in 97. I joined in 99. 
And it was really this, although I was happy where I was, it was this kind of like grass is always greener little thing. I had, I had a little FOMO. I don't think that term had been invented back then, but I had a little FOMO, like all this cool stuff was happening in tech and am I missing out? And here I had this really close friend who's one of the smartest people I know who had started this business. And I thought, man, this, this is probably as good a set of conditions as I could find to, to jump into the tech world. And you know, this was the original tech bubble, at least internet tech bubble, kind of a bit like the bubble that we've experienced over the past four or so years in tech up until what, a year ago, a year and a half ago. Just crazy amounts of capital being thrown at businesses left and right, you know, questionable business cases out there for some of these businesses, but it was like rocket ship times when I joined and, you know, that changed fairly quickly after I got there, but that's what it was like when I joined. How does the tech bubble you know, that you experienced then in the early 2000s compared to this most recent one that we had, like, how do you compare? You know, I was born in 1990. I was you know, 10 years old when all this stuff was happening. So I don't know. And I think a lot of our audience is, you know, probably in similar shoes where, you know, they haven't you know, experienced firsthand right. what it was like in the 2000s. Right. I got to say, it feels very familiar. And one of the big differences, though, is that one happened faster, which in some ways made it easier, I think. Here's how fast it happened. <laughs> the company I was at was called Avenue A. I think something like nine months after we raised our Series B, we went public. We went public on Leap Day in 2000. And something like 14 days later, you can actually Google it if you're interested, but the NASDAQ crashed. Something like 13 or 14 days after we went public, we raised, I don't know, 125 million bucks. Everybody's running around. The share price is over the moon. The company is still very, very small, but that those were the times, right? We were growing fast and there were a bunch of other companies that were public too. And then 14 days later, the NASDAQ didn't just start to, you know, kind of go down a little bit, it cratered. And so the bubble burst over the course of like, a couple of weeks. And, you know, it became very clear within a couple of months that there were just a bunch of companies that were nowhere, they had no chance of surviving. And so this, this fallout happened very quickly. You know, when I think about what's going on now or over the last 18 months, you know, when the Fed started signaling interest rate hikes, this, that was the fall of 21. Okay. The NASDAQ started to soften October, November of 2021, and it teetered and then it went down, you know, and the capital markets got soft. It got harder and harder to raise private capital uh, because public company multiples, public company tech multiples were coming down. But here we are, what, over a year and a half later, and, you know, only in the last couple of months are you starting to see all the stories about the companies that aren't going to make it. And so this one is just, it's taking longer. And I think that's actually more difficult because sort of the day of reckoning or the reality that there might be a day of reckoning out there, it's just coming more slowly, in my opinion. Yeah. I think with that, just lingering and hanging out there, that creates a lot of anxiety for founders too, right? I think every founder's just been reading these headlines for the last 18 months of, you know, what's going to come and what's coming. And now we're seeing these stories like you just talked about, right? Like, you know, all the companies that are potentially going to die in the next six months. So I feel like the media is just, you know, hammering founders with like very, very dark yeah. messages. So maybe yeah. it would be best if it was just, you know, a quick cut and then it was done. That's right. Ripped Band-Aid, you know, more quickly understand the reality of the situation so you can get into, you know, action mode, right? You can get into execution mode. 
and that's not to say there were early signs and certainly some big, notable, smart investors who pretty early on said, you know, everybody strap in, this is going to be rough. You know, Sequoia had a, a kind of a famous deck that went around. And so it's not to say that, that people are being caught by surprise, but it's kind of like this slow unraveling of businesses and a slow realization that actually this is super serious. And, and I think that's right. It just, it creates more anxiety. It creates less urgency at some level, because I think it one could hope be in more of a position of hoping that this isn't going to actually impact my business. So, you know, it's different in that sense. But, you know, I'll tell you the lessons learned. I feel it wasn't any fun when I went through it, when the bubble burst. I was part of this company that was just going to the moon. And then, you know, a couple months later, we were doing massive rifts and hunkered down and, you know, went on this death march to build the new product, which was the core of the, of the company strategy. And it was really really rough. You know, in that case, it, it actually worked really well. And so the lessons learned from that period are incredibly valuable as we navigate this version of a similar set of conditions. Yeah, I'm sure. A couple of other questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Bill Knight, the founder and obviously CEO of Nike. What do I admire about him? You know, through a tech lens, it's kind of a non-traditional startup. But what I love is that, you know, this business was born out of a passion that he had, clearly, you know, he's a runner. And the journey he's been on, and by the way, there's a great book called Chew Dog. If, if, if folks are into book recommendations, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. You know, it started out as kind of a design and innovation engineering type of business, you know, build a better shoe. There's this competitive intrigue, you know, he's a runner. And so for this entrepreneur to, to, you know, start with a passion and then navigate through design, engineer, you know, business model through this negotiation early on with a partner who was also a competitor and then brand, you know, building this brand that's based in emotion and passion and a shared sense of, I don't know, community around being an athlete, that whole thing. And then you think about how that company has evolved into one of the world's best brands. They've got one of the most innovative supply chains. I mean, it's just the innovation has never stopped. And so now they're one of the best companies, arguably, in the world. And they're still driven by this passion. So from a culture perspective over many, many, many decades, you know, it still exudes this founder. So I love it. You know, he's in it for the long term building a great business. They're kind of never done building and innovating. And, you know, that's what resonates with me. You know, it's like, you know, you want to build a great company. It's a long journey and you can, there's this element of like, you never have to be done because there's always more innovation you can do. Like your customers, you serve them well. And then very likely if you do that, they're going to come back and say, Hey, can you also do this thing for me? And you can continue to sort of innovate and grow your business based on expanding what you can do for your target customers. Have you seen that new movie, Air? I haven't yet. Top of my list. Oh man, if you love Phil Knight, you got to watch that. It's so good. Yeah, I've heard only that about it. So I'm excited. I know you mentioned his book there, but let's go a little bit deeper into books. We love book recommendations. How okay. we like to frame this is, uh, we, it's called a quake book. That's how Ryan Holiday defined it at least. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core and just really influences how you think about life and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind for you? The Goal. Do you know this book? 
No, I don't. Uh, Ellie Goldrat, I think, is the name. The Goal. And it's relatively short. It is a book about optimizing a manufacturing plant. But what it's really about is, you know, continuous improvement. And it's probably a few decades old now. And by the way, it's written in the form of a novel. So it's a story with really interesting characters, but it's about optimizing a manufacturing process. I think of it as, you know, like the lean startup and there's a bunch of startup books that at some level, this is the kind of OG of, of that genre. It's really about like identifying where are you, what are your bottlenecks to sort of achieving the next milestone or the next phase, or, you know, if you're a startup, your product market fit. And it's just being hyper-focused on figuring out what the bottleneck is, the biggest one, solve it, and then, you know, celebrate for like two seconds and then go find the next bottleneck and do it again and do it again and do it again. And it's just a really cool book. And again, it's written in the form of a novel. So it's also, you know, it's good character development and storytelling. It's it's a great book, pretty quick read and uh, one that you can keep coming back to. I love these classic business books that are written in that way where they're short, sweet, and then they have this like narrative format that just makes it so much easier to consume. It's almost like it's enjoyable to consume versus you know, like homework that you need to do to try to study and improve. Like it really does feel like you're just reading a story. So I'll definitely have to check that book out. Right on. Let's switch gears now. And let's dive a bit deeper into Flex. So what is an omni-channel logistics solution? Yeah, so Flex helps the supply chains of many of the world's largest customers become more flexible. The name is not an accident. So it is about bringing flexibility to supply chains and more specifically, their logistics infrastructure. Okay, so let me take a quick step back. So what is logistics? Really simply defined, logistics is the movement of goods from some point of origin, which could be you know in Asia, it could be in a plant in you know Northeast Missouri, Moving goods from point of origin to point of destination. That's logistics. And goods move from origin to destination across a network, a physical network of nodes and arcs, much like a, uh, a data network, but these are transportation lanes. So ships, planes, trucks, you know, bike messengers in New York City and San Francisco, whatever. So those are the lanes. And then the nodes are warehouses. Goods come across a lane, they typically will enter some type of warehouse where they get reconfigured and they go out the other side of the building, down another lane, and so on and so on until they reach their final destination. That's logistics, okay? So it's 8% of GDP is logistics. So it's one of the biggest industries like on the planet. And you don't have to know the industry to understand that it is built on physical assets and physical infrastructure, like buildings, trucks, ships, right? And when you think about the flow of goods, our observation, which was the founding, you know, light bulb behind our company Flex, is that the nodes are the constraints to optimizing the network because warehouses are fixed in place and time. And the economic construct behind warehouses is a long-term warehouse lease. Okay, so if you think about, if you were to say, hey, I'm going to build a data network, but I'm going to have, you know, two data centers and they're going to be fixed in time and space and all my traffic, all of my digital bandwidth has to flow through one or the other or both of these nodes, it would severely limit your ability to do what you want to do. And that is exactly the same in 
the physical world of a network supporting the flow of goods. Okay. So our thing was like, look, warehouses are static, but businesses are dynamic. That's it. You know, there's seasonality, there's new product launches, there's, oh shit, my forecast was wrong. And, you know, turns out people don't want beanie babies anymore. Like whatever. The world is very dynamic, but these warehouses are incredibly static. And if you can change that, if you can make them dynamic, you can unlock an incredible amount of economic value within that, you know, 1.6 trillion, which is the 8% of GDP, 1.6 trillion of spend that goes into these things. So that was probably a longer winded answer than you're looking for. But what Flex does is we make those nodes flexible for, again, some of the biggest companies on the planet. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. You take us back to 2013. How did you uncover this problem? Because it doesn't sound like you had a, this long 30-year career in logistics and you were living the problem yourself and said, ah, oh, I got to solve this for myself. So how did you uncover this problem? Yeah, the serendipity of it, I think, comes in two forms. The first form is when I mentioned that I'd worked in ad tech, the business that we built in ad tech was a two-sided network or marketplace type of model where we connected buyers and sellers of digital media. So think ad space on Yahoo and all the websites back then and all those that have evolved, including the search engines, et cetera. So we would connect the buyers and sellers of digital media through a technology platform that would allow them to buy smarter, that would allow them to streamline the workflows of sending assets back and forth, the actual sort of digital images and ultimately allowed tracking and the measurement of ROI in a very apples to apples kind of scalable way. That was a business we built and evolved over many years as that market went from, you know, the early days where everyone thought it was stupid, like who's going to ever be looking at website pages to who's ever going to advertise to, you know, Google being born and scaling and, you know, a couple of the big platforms basically emerging as the dominant platforms, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera. So I had that experience during this time of category creation. And so that was basically etched in my brain, this notion of a two-sided marketplace connected by a tech platform. Serendipity point number two was I met a guy, friend of a friend at a housewarming party. And he sits down and says, oh, you're a tech guy. And by the way, at this time, I was kind of on the beach thinking about my next thing, uh, having sold a, a business prior to that. And he says, I got an idea for you. And he literally laid out basically what I just said. He said, boy, warehouses are so static. Everybody's got capacity all over the place. Some are long. They have too much capacity. Others are short. They have not enough. And if you can build a marketplace to tap into all this infrastructure that is wasted right now, you could bring flexibility and add a ton of value. And it's just, just one of these things where the, the idea kind of dropped in my lap. He became customer number one. Uh, so we had a customer with a real problem, which is, you know, a key ingredient to starting a business. And uh, we were off and running. What was it like then, you know, maybe acquiring the first, let's say, 10 or 15 customers because you're not, you know, just selling like a, a little e-commerce widget here or some little small thing. Like it, it sounds like, you know, a brand could maybe like test and see if it works. It sounds like, you know, this is something where if they, they're using it, they're really using it. So what was it like to acquire those first paying customers? Yeah. 
It was really fun. Like it was super scrappy. So I had two co-founders, they're both engineers and it was just three of us for over a year. Actually, we didn't raise any outside capital because we wanted to sort of prove that there was a business in here, prove that we had some version of product market fit. You know, it's a complicated business. You know, two-sided businesses are, you got to have a value prop for the buyers, a value prop for the sellers, so to speak. So it was the three of us. And I was kind of the, the BD strategy business guy. These guys were building the first version of the platform and it was super scrappy, but we didn't start off targeting big enterprises. It was just, we needed to develop platform and, you know, pricing value prop, proving the value with customers who would be easier to acquire. And for us, that was smaller businesses. And uh, so those were our first, you know, few dozen customers were smaller. And we sort of notionally had this plan to move up market. That's where I had spent most of my career selling to big, you know, global enterprise companies in, in prior lives. But what started to happen, which was actually pretty cool, is before we even decided to proactively go do that, we had some really big companies cold calling us based on our Google ads, you know, which were targeted towards smaller businesses. And so when that started to happen, you sort of like, okay, now we're getting signal that big enterprise companies have a version of this same problem. They are interested in flexible warehousing. So that feels pretty good. And then, you know, we talked about Nike kind of innovating from one thing to the next, to the next, that this kind of became our uh, version of our path where, you know, what you build for a smaller company is helpful. And in, in many ways in this space, it was helpful for bigger companies, but you also need a pretty different solution to meet the requirements of an enterprise. And those are different software features. It's certainly different go-to-market capabilities. And so um, we moved up to start to serve enterprises probably after about two years in business, kind of 2015, 2016, when things really started to take off, we wrote, let's say we did our series A in, in, in the summer of 2016, just to give some perspective on the timing. What was COVID like for you? Is that a big trigger moment? It was, oh boy, I don't even know where to start. You know, just from our industry perspective, you know, COVID created a lot of anxiety and then ultimately created some real tailwinds. Now, those tailwinds were highly variable. The first tailwind was, not surprisingly, e-commerce, right? Everybody's locked inside. The only way you buy stuff is through e-com. And so, you know, this has been well covered. The volume that shifted from brick and mortar to e-com was massive, right? And so people, you know, retailers needed new technologies, more capacity, more capabilities, and it was a scramble. And there were a bunch of logistics companies who grew very fast. Based on that, we were one of them. And then, you know, the next chapter was all of a sudden supply chain lines of actually the goods getting severed, right? So China shuts down. Now I can't get any inventory. So that requires new needs and a new reaction, you know, and then the next thing was those supply chains started to open up a little bit. And so everyone started hoarding, you know, the biggest retailers in the world were just clamoring to buy as much inventory as they could. And then that netted out as many of these companies having too much inventory, uh, kind of circa, what, three, four quarters ago, five. And that started to happen at the same time that the actual market out there, uh, not the capital markets, but the economy started to slow down, right? Uh, consumer spending started to slow down. And so, you know, it's just kind of wave after wave of disruption in the logistics industry. And that has generally been a tailwind for a lot of businesses, including Flex. When it comes to the growth and adoption that you're seeing today, are there any numbers that you can share? Sure. So Flex works with about 
a hundred or so of these very large enterprise customers. I think we work with seven out of the 10 largest retailers, four out of the top five largest CPG companies. We work in food and beverage. We work in industrial manufacturing. So really, really, really big companies. Our software platform is deployed across this network of warehouses, warehouse operators across the US and Canada. And we are live right now in hundreds of warehouses that are supporting operations across those enterprises that are referred to. And the volume of goods is very, very, very large. You know, so just take millions and millions and millions of products flowing through these warehouses kind of month over month. So it's a pretty big business. There's a ton of flow, you know, flow of goods that we help go from, again, point of origin to point of destination in a bit more of an optimized way. If we look back at the early days when you were starting the company, what was the intention? In the back of your head, did you have the intention of, hey, I'm going to build a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company? Like, was that the intention as you were starting on the idea or did you almost stumble into it and, you know, early in realize, wow, this could be huge? No, I really, from day one, wanted to build a great company, you know, a big company, a company that could really operate in a highly scaled way. You know, I was fortunate enough to be a part of that in the ad tech world, and I wanted to try and find a way to to do V2 of that. And, you know, the part of stumbling into it was, you know, I already described the, the story, but, you know, you realize very, very, very early on how massive this industry is, how much there is a need for flexibility and agility, just because with technology emerging in all kinds of shapes and sizes, the rate of change in the world is increasing. And so the need to have a more dynamic, agile way to ship your stuff, it was just like, there's no way that was not a need in the market and was not going to be a growing need. So you have this massive market just in terms of the size of the dollars. And against that, you have this need, this core need for agility, and you have a business model that solves that problem. It just, it felt very early on that this, needs to be a really big business. And, you know, that has turned out to be true. And it's also one of these things that like, we're not even close to being done, not even close. Like there's so much more that we want to do, that we need to do, that the market needs. And it's not just Flex, obviously. There's some other great companies in this category, many other great companies in the category, but it's just a massive opportunity and it needs more big, innovative, scaled, technology-enabled companies. Reading online reports, you became a unicorn in July, 2022. What was that moment like for you? Was that memorable? Like, do you remember that day that you officially became a unicorn or was it just another day and, and back to work? Oh, I really remember it. And it's not so much about the valuation, the unicorn, you know, it's really more about that we got it done on, you know, terms that we were happy with. Again, just to, to remind people of where we were in July or August of last year, so the NASDAQ started to weaken October, November, the year prior, so eight, nine months prior to that, the multiples started to contract. Not long after that, private capital started to dry up. You know, circa November, we went out for our Series D and that was right when the big growth investors started to sit on their hands and they're like, hey, you know, we're not really sure how this is going to go. So we're going to, we're going to be pretty cautious now. You know, the days of free money were quickly over. And at the point we had a decent amount of capital in the bank, a decent amount of runway. 
but you just had to bet that the capital markets would continue to just get more and more challenging. So here we were going out to raise money and it took us, I don't know, seven months. In prior rounds, it took us like 10 weeks or something. And it's because the market was so challenging. So investors who were kind of cautious and sitting on their hands a little bit, you know, they'd check back in the next month and it turns out, oh, we're actually ahead of the plan that we shared with you last month. And then another month would go by and same thing. So our team's ability to execute during that period of time was the difference. The business grew very, very quickly. We beat plan and that's what was needed to differentiate ourselves from the pack. You know, these kind of series C-ish companies who are all looking for more capital in a bit of an anxious time and we got her done. So my feeling was when we closed that round was kind of, you know, wipe the brow. Thankfully we got that done and then quickly get back to, you know, operating mode so that we can go do what we need to do on this, you know, what should be and will be our last round of fundraising for this business. The last round of fundraising? That's it. So what's next? Well, you know, like I said, we got a lot more to do, but we have enough capital in the bank to get to profitability. You know, who is it? Paul Graham or somebody has this term default dead mm-hmm. or default alive. Like we are default alive. Uh, I read that book that you know, I read a lot, but that was the one that resonated with me. We got to be default alive. You know, it's just so we can control our own destiny. The market's huge. The needs are big, but we've got to make sure that we maintain our path to long-term indefinite viability, which is what we've been focused on. So what's next is, man, you know, I don't know. The basic stuff is like, let's just not lose sight of taking really, really good care of our existing customers because they're some of the best companies in the world. And let's pace out our rate of innovation so that we keep innovating, but we don't you know, try to do too many things too fast and find ourselves overextended. Because again, you know, I don't think the capital markets are coming back for a long time. Thankfully, we don't have to be dependent on that. And look, in a future date, years from now, if we decide we want to raise more capital, it'll be from a position of strength and, you know, to go make discrete investments at a more accelerated rate than we would otherwise do. When I Google your name, when I Google the company's name, you know, I find success. I find stories about growth, about the valuation. Are there any untold stories here about some of the pain and challenges that you faced as you were building the company? What I found is, you know, a lot of time companies that get to this level of success, there's always these, you know, stories of maybe near-death experiences or just times where it became very, very intense. And and these are the stories that our audience loves to hear about. Oh yeah. We <laughs> We've definitely had those. I mean, it's been a long journey already. It's kind of hard to believe, you know, we've been at this. We had our 10-year anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So now we had this early chapter in our life where it was just three founders. You know, we started literally in my basement and then moved to the common area of Ed, one of my co-founders, condos. You know, we were super scrappy. And and frankly, we all had that DNA and we loved it. It was part of the fun. And then we didn't raise institutional capital, as I said, until 2016, but we've been at it a long time and there's been all kinds of, you know, is this really going to work moments? You know, the belief in the vision and what the world needs, what the market needs has never wavered. In fact, we've only developed more and more conviction, but it's really hard to build businesses. It's, you know, probably people listening to us, you know, in the no duh camp on that, but it's really hard. It's really hard to build a two-sided marketplace. You got to have a great value proposition times two. You know, we are in a sector where there's a lot of traditional solutions and a lot of conservative risk averse thinking for good reasons. You know, you don't want to mess up the flow of your goods. So you end up, 
losing inventory or not shipping the right thing. So the rate of change in adoption is challenging for these big enterprises that have a lot to lose if things don't go well. So we've had all kinds of problems. So let me try to be more specific. Let's see, right after we raised our series B, the business was performing really, really well. This would have been early 2019. And we got this new investors on board. We'd love them. And boy, a couple months after that, we started missing our, our target. And it was just rough because up until then, we had just beaten plan, beaten plan, beaten plan. And we went through about a close to a year where we were missing and it was super hard and we lost some people, uh, not because we had to pull back expense, but just because people kind of found themselves in, a, in an environment that didn't feel like we were winning every week, every month. It was like hard and some people kind of churned out. It really brought us closer with our investors and we realized what we thought we knew was, you know, what they told us they were going to be partners for the long term. But, you know, you go through a phase like that and, you know, we felt support, you know, their expectations weren't being met, nor were ours, but it was one of these, all right, let's lock arms and, and figure it out. And we did. So that's a time in our history that, that comes to mind. And we've had others like, you know, we've had these tailwind moments and we've had these headwind moments and it's really hard. It's really hard, but you know, in the through line of time, we had far more energizing days than days of anxiety, if that uh, resonates with anyone else out there. If you reflect on the success you've achieved, what do you think you've gotten right? I think what we've gotten right is two things. One is a customer focus mantra. And to be honest, like there are times where I feel like we're not doing it well enough. And even, you know, I think back on our, some of our, team meetings in the last couple of weeks, you know, someone, you know, on the team will just kind of call it out and like, Hey, I feel like we're under serving the customer in this conversation. And you're right. You are. And so I reflect on that. It's like, we have this customer focus. We want to have a customer focus. That doesn't mean, you know, it just automatically happens. You got to have that embedded in the culture at some level so that people will serve as kind of beacons and reminders to get us back on track. That's one. The other thing I think we've gotten right is we have never lost sight of the big vision about what this business can be and, and needs to be and should be. It continues to serve as a very energizing driver of our activity. And, you know, I talked a minute ago about not all days are sort of, you know, rainbows and unicorns, you know, and sunshine or whatever, like there are hard days, hard weeks, but that is one of the things that keeps me going, I think keeps many of us going. It's just like the business opportunity, the need is so big. You know, let's not lose sight of that big vision because it's a very, very energizing thing. So I think we've gotten those two things right. If you're speaking with an early stage founder of a logistics technology startup, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to them? I would say in a moment of reflection, ask yourself, if this business that I'm building doesn't end up being a billion dollar or whatever, like a big, massive financial success, however you would define that. If it doesn't end up being that, will I be able to look back on the experience and still say it was worth it? And I'm glad I wasn't doing anything else. Like that is a really important asset test because what that says is it helps illuminate, you know, am I really, really enjoying the journey? Like, is it really about the journey more so than this potential outcome? And if the answer is not a clear yes, then you should find a different business to build. I think it's that clear because you know what? Maybe the business will be a big financial success, but it's kind of rare. And the truth is 
for the businesses that don't reach those outcomes, sometimes it's due to execution, but often they're just forces beyond your control, right? And so if that's what you're focused on, it can be a bit of a uh, hollow driver, in my opinion. Final question for you, since I know we're uh, up on time here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. Can you just paint a picture for us what this big picture vision is? I, I know you've touched on it a little bit throughout the interview, but tease us a little bit. What's the next three to five years going to look like? Yeah, I think the next three to five years for our business is going to be accelerated adoption. You know, I talked about the, the decision-making amongst our customers is relatively slower compared to other industries. The risk aversion is relatively high. We have amazing customers you know, but in the grand scheme of things, if you were to had a whiteboard in front of you, you were to map out the sort of product ad adoption life cycle and plot us on it from like early adopters, early majority. I don't remember what the other stages are. We're still kind of early, but we have proven through uh, super compelling ROI value to the customer and a bunch of reference customers. We've proven that this agility is super valuable. And that is now starting to be spread across the market and the industry. And we see the next sort of three to five years is when more will sort of hit that kind of majority adopter sort of phase where this is no longer, it's no longer seen as kind of scary or risky to adopt us. It's going to flip to kind of risky to not adopt. And, and I say us, but like a solution like ours, this sort of flexible solution for your logistics infrastructure. We're just right there on that point of flipping to that, to that accelerated sort of adoption across the industry. Amazing. Carl, I, I love the vision. I love everything that you're doing and, and really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know the founders who are going to listen to it, they're going to love it as well. If any of the founders that are listening want to just follow along with your journey as you build and execute, where should they go? Well, let's see. You always know, ping me on LinkedIn. We got usually good stuff coming through our, our website. We got a, actually, we have our own podcast. It's not really ours. It's more of an industry podcast that we're kind of leading you know, for those out there who are in this industry, I highly recommend. We've got some amazing guests there. Those are a few ideas. Amazing. Carl, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brad. It's been fun. All right. Take care.